Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you. I'm going to echo what uh, um, what Chandler said on Tuesday. This is going to be just as awkward for me as it is for you. Every time I've preached before, I've always had a sort of a live audience in front of me. But but screen or not, I'm very happy to be here with you this morning. And and sort of echoing, that's because of what uh, what Glenn alluded to. I really do love the Word of God and. And I, I love it because, especially during really chaotic times like this, when life is just frenzied, like see, on top of school, we have the coronavirus that's going on. The Word of God is really a steady anchor for our soul and really is food for the soul, as Peter says. Right? There's a reason we're to cry out for it as the baby screams for milk because it is God's primary means of nourishing us. And and I, I'm, I just love... I dearly love being chosen by the Lord to sort of help give that to you this morning. And so with that being said, go ahead and turn your Bibles to Psalm 15. Turn your Bibles to Psalm 15 with me. Um, I want to sort of direct our minds to a little bit more of a convicting passage of Scripture this morning, a little bit more, a little more of a heart-piercing text. And the simple reason for that is uh, life is, as I just said, very chaotic. Um, especially right now. I mean, we're, we're all in school. We're all sort of under the, the constant sense of pressure with due dates and assignments, and many of us are still working as well. And, of course, many of you also have families, wives and children on top of all of that. And on top of all of that, we also have this coronavirus pandemic that's sort of swept across the nation. All of a sudden, we can't touch our face. We have to stay six feet apart from people. We have to disinfect things we never had to disinfect before. And plus, there's just the normal worry of who is going to get sick? Is my family going to be safe? Who's losing their jobs? Um, is the economy going to crash? Right? Life is chaotic and hectic, and it sort of just takes over sometimes and distracts us needlessly, or maybe not needlessly, but overwhelmingly, rather. And when that happens, what I've noticed in my own life is that what frequently occurs is that we often begin to lose sight of what I would say is the most precious thing for the Christian. And that is his personal walk with the Lord, his personal intimacy with the Lord, his personal holy living with the Lord, his personal, his personal fellowship with the Father. Right? It's very easy to lose sight of that because we're so sort of frenzied with life. And, and when that happens, what I've noticed is sort of going along with what Paul says, knowing the schemes of the devil, it's during those times that we are often at our very weakest. And it's during those times that it is often exceedingly, frighteningly easy to sort of lose our grip on a holy living, to sort of let sin slowly but surely creep into our lives as we perhaps start to run to other things for security and instead of directly seeking the Lord all the time. And when that occurs, what often happens is that you, at least for me, is I, I sort of feel as though I'm starting to drift from the Lord, to drift from the Lord and lose that sense of intimacy, that sense of fellowship with him, right? And the passage this morning that I'm going to walk us through sort of deals, sort of deals with that issue or speaks to that issue. More specifically, Psalm 15 deals with the problem of what does it take to have a sturdy to have sturdy fellowship with God, to have intimacy with our Holy Father. In fact, that 
biblically speaking, that's a very significant theme. In fact, it's so significant that God devotes an entire book of the Old Testament almost in, entirely to that topic, the book of Leviticus. And the illustration, it's sort of the importance of this issue is sort of illustrated for us when we read of how the how there was only one man in all of Israel who could enter the direct presence of God the Father, the high priest. And even on top of the, even even there he couldn't enter on his own terms, but he had to enter on he had to enter the temple on God's terms. He could only enter once a year. He had to bring a sacrifice. He had to sacrifice an animal. He had to make sure all of his personal sin was dealt with. And he had to sprinkle the blood of that sacrifice on the altar to atone for his personal sin. And all of that to illustrate that, biblically speaking, entering God's presence is, and fellowshipping with him, engaging in intimacy with our Holy Father is, is no trivial thing. It, it is no trivial thing. Uh, and this is simply because God is fiercely holy and, and we are not. God is fiercely holy and we are not. God is so holy that there, there's always... There always has been and there still is sort of this vast chasm between his standards and our standards. So much so that not only will the Father reject the reprobate or the, the, un, the unrepentant from his presence, but there's even a sense in which for his own children who do not deal with sin in their lives and do not actively pursue holiness, there's a sense in which he looks on them with grief or disfavor and then there's sort of this barrier that's created between the children of God and their father. And I, I think it's even safe to say that the author of this psalm experienced this himself. King David failed miserably in his life. He was distracted by the sin of pride um, and committed adultery with Bathsheba, sent a hitman to murder the husband. And after that occurred, you could pr it's probably, probably safe to assume that David and God were not really on speaking terms for a while. In fact, it seems as though the richness of the relationship wasn't resumed until we get to Psalm 51 and, and David sort of bursts out in repentant song, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And just like with King David, sin still aggravates our walk with God. No matter what stage of life we're in, sin still aggravates our walk with God. Sin makes it difficult to pray. Sin makes it difficult to Exercise the spiritual disciplines. It makes it difficult to feel as though you are really connecting with the Father when you read his word. Um, so, so because sin still is this pernicious problem, this persistent problem in our lives, you and I still, though we are, though we are saved by the blood of Christ, though we're indwelt by his spirit, though we're adopted into God's very family and loved by him now unconditionally, you and I still have a very active role in our sanctification. You and I still have to keep a vigilant watch over our lives. Because the, scheme, because the schemes of the devil are still very active. He knows the, the power of sin and how sin can slowly pull us away from looking towards our Father and making us like him. So with that being said, let me read our text this morning. Psalm 15. Go ahead and follow along with me. It reads like this. O Lord, who may abide in your tent, David says, who may dwell on your holy hill, he who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. He does not slander with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. He swears to his own hurt and doesn't change. 
He does not put out his money at interest, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things will never be shaken. David is essentially asking and answering one essential question in this psalm. And then we find it in verse 1. He says, O Lord, who may abide in your tent? O Lord, who may dwell on your holy hill? It's the same question asked twice, as is typical of Hebrew parallelism. The first time he asks it, he says, who may abide in your tent? The word for abide means to sojourn. It sort of carries the idea of visiting from a foreign land and staying at someone's house as a guest. Second time he asks the question, he says, who may dwell on your holy hill? The word for dwell means to sort of settle down as if you're at home. So taken together, David's essentially asking, Lord, Lord, who is worthy to come from afar, to come from a distant land, to dwell in your house, your home, your temple, your intimate presence as a guest? In other words, David is very simply asking the universal question, what does it take to fellowship with God? Who may, who is privileged, who is worthy to fellowship with Almighty God? And that question was not only pertinent to him, the question is still significant for us. This is a wisdom psalm, and it was, it was written as something that the people of God would recite on their way up to the temple as they traveled to pilgrimage feasts. So it was, it was meant as, sort of as a regular heart checkup for God's people, and just like it was meant as a heart checkup for Israel, it's meant to be a heart checkup for us as well. It is, it's meant to sort of, sort of get us thinking about holiness. And the, and the answer that David provides for this question, it's, it's not really the answer that the average Jew would have expected to hear. It's, it, it, when the average Jew thought of the concept of what does it take to be in the presence of God, he normally thought of sacrifice. He normally thought of offering, maybe grain offering or bull, bull offering, typically. But David sort of skips right past that, and he targets the heart of the worshiper himself. David answers the question by listing 11 traits that should constantly characterize the child of God, the one who seeks to be close to God and to dwell with him in intimate fellowship. And, and in listing his 11 traits, he sort of groups them, and as far as I can tell, into four main categories. Number one, he says that the would-be worshiper must strive to be good. The would-be worshiper must strive to treat others well. The would-be worshiper must have a proper perspective towards other people, and the would-be worshiper must conduct himself in goodness in his surrounding world. So without further ado, David's first answer to his question, who may dwell in the presence of God? Who is it? What kind of a righteous person is God looking for to be in intimate fellowship with him? And really by extension, how does God, really what this psalm is answering for us is how does God expect you and I to live or strive to live in the midst of the chaos of life? First, he said, his first answer comes in verse 2. He says, it is he who walks with integrity, works righteousness, and speaks truth in his heart. David's first answer to this question, the would-be worshiper must strive to be good. It's a very basic point, sort of a self-explanatory point, but it's very foundational. In other words, the would-be worshiper must be the kind of person whose overall character, whose overall life pattern must mimic the goodness of God. First, he says it is to be he who walks with integrity. The word for integrity can mean uh, sort of complete, unscathed, impeccable, free of blame, free of blemish. Sort of carries the idea of having clean hands, as David says in Psalm 24. 
And it simply refers to the quality of always and consistently doing the right thing, even when no one is watching. And as a virtue, I feel like integrity is, I mean, it, it seems very foundational and maybe assumed to some people, but I, I honestly think it's one of the most uh, troublesome virtues that we struggle with today. You see, and the reason for that is you and I live in a culture that is particularly just full of temptation. It's almost like we can't escape temptation sometimes. You, from everything from billboards on the side of the road that display things that they shouldn't be displaying, everything to TV commercials, computer pop-ups. Uh, sometimes y'all ever have those stubborn little advertisements on YouTube, and some of them aren't very clean, and then some of them, to your horror, you can't skip, right? It's just sort of really annoying. Tem it, my point with that is that temptation pops up everywhere. We live in a world that it seems like we almost can't escape temptation to view something that we shouldn't view or listen to something that we shouldn't listen to. So integrity for us here at NBC, it, it might simply mean refusing to watch, maybe refusing to watch that R-rated movie that someone's pressuring you to see. Maybe it's refusing to listen to that edgy song that your friends are pressuring you to hear. And it's just, maybe it's just taking vigilant care of what, what your eyes see on the internet, right? Careful little eyes, what you see. For some of us, it might be vigilantly guarding our thoughts as we go about our lives, right? But integrity is one of those virtues that sort of sneaks up on us and it's sometimes very hard to manage. Secondly, David says, it is he who works righteousness. Sort of a self-explanatory virtue. It simply means to actively serve the Lord with your life. Not only are we to be people who sort of uh, shut our eyes from seeing evil or refuse to put something worthless in front of us, as Isaiah phrases it, but we're also to be people whose, whose, whose lives are characterized by an active pursuit of what is good. And to my encouragement, that's happening a lot here at NBC, right? Many of you are, are looking to get into vocational ministry. So that's why you're here. You're, you're here to receive training for what God would have you to do in the future. You're here to seek training to do uh, what God would have you do with your life and with your vocation. But let me also remind you that to work righteousness also consists of little things. It also consists of little things. It, it could even be as little as small, everyday acts of kindness to those around you. It might be just simply praying for someone. It might simply be uh, choosing to talk to that despondent friend that maybe looks a little outcast or downtrodden. It might be choosing to take a little time out of your day to call up your family that would love to hear from you and hasn't in a while. Maybe it's being generous with your money, being generous with your time, right? But there, my point is that to work righteousness, to, to exemplify the trait that David points out here, it doesn't just consist in the big things. Sometimes it's the small things, the little everyday things of life that, that God would work, would have you do in the world to help it reflect his character just a little more. And lastly, on this first point, David says, the would-be worshiper must be someone who speaks truth in his heart. To speak truth in the heart, it doesn't merely mean to say the truth. It means to have this stubborn internal commitment to only saying what is right, to only saying what is proper, really to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. So much so that when you speak, that's all that comes out. Really, that's kind of what it's getting at. 
it's not just the absence of lies, it's not just the absence of falsehood or deception, it's a commitment to always telling the whole truth. Uh, let me apply this to us for a minute. How, just start thinking to yourself, how committed are we to total and complete honesty? I just want you to think about that, right? In the midst of the chaos of life, it's, it's really good to do these heart checks, right? How committed are we to total and complete honesty? For those of you who fill out a time card when you work, how diligent are you to pay very close attention to how many hours you write down on the time card? Are you sometimes tempted to sort of round it off to the nearest 10 minutes or something like that, maybe when you shouldn't do that? For those of us who, and I think this would apply to most of us, for those, for those of us who receive the reading sheet as it passes through the class, right? Uh, are we sometimes writing 90% when maybe it should be more like 85 or 80, right? Do we have this staunch commitment to honesty? Because the God we serve is a very honest God. The God that you and I have been adopted by, who is our own father and who, would, and who longs for us to be close to him, he is a God committed to perfect and pure honesty. And are you seeking to be like him in that area? That's all I'm asking. Secondly, David says that the would-be worshiper must strive to treat others well. First of all, in that point, beginning in verse 3, he does not slander with his tongue. To slander could also be translated uh, as biting. In other words, it carries the idea of sort of biting someone with your words or saying things with your words that sort of bite or chew at the reputation of someone else. It means to say something that harms or belittles the reputation of another person. And I think this is another one of those sin issues that sort of creeps into our lives sort of unnoticed. We, in our gossip, sometimes we, in just, in just our everyday complaints, we, we slander when we, when we don't even realize it. We slander our friends. We slander our coworkers. We slander our bosses sometimes. And, and even I've, I've noticed before, sometimes as students, we even slander our pastors and teachers sometimes. Sometimes we hurt with our words, and just, just as we complain in everyday life, it's just one of those sins, one of those virtues we let go of when life sort of overwhelms us. Are you being careful with your words? When you seek to pray before the Father and enter his presence to receive, you know, to partake of fellowship with him, do you drag this in on your, on your conscience undealt with? It's a good, it's a good thing to think about. David also goes on, on the theme of treating others well. He says, nor does he do evil to his neighbor. Again, a, a pretty simple point. It simply means that it would never enter your mind to do harm to someone else or to do something to someone that would be to their detriment. But may I also, I want to also kind of expand on that. Isaiah kind of, kind of goes further than that. Isaiah says the righteous man is he who shuts his eyes from seeing evil and stops his ears so that they hear no bloodshed. And, and with that, I, I want to say to you that I, I think the true essence of this virtue to be the type of people who never do evil to their neighbor is to be the kind of person not only never personally engages in that, but also to be the kind of person who hates to even watch it happen. And with that, let me ask you this question. Do we grieve at the misfortune of others? Do we grieve at the misfortune of others? Do we grieve when evil, evil happens to other people? Does it sort of wrench our soul? Right? Do, do we have the sort of same deep tenderheartedness as our Father? 
See, God is just. God does punish the wicked, but he's also very tender-hearted, and he doesn't have this. He doesn't have a particular delight in seeing people suffer or seeing evil happen to people. I just want you to think to yourself: Do you share that tender-heartedness with him? Right. And on top of not doing evil to his neighbor, David also says, nor does he take up a reproach against his friend. To take up a reproach means to take up a shame, to take up a disgrace. It means, it's very similar to slander. It means to say something shameful about someone. But it carries the idea of public exposal with it. In other words, David is saying that the righteous worshiper, the, the one that God would allow into his presence, is he who refuses to publicly shame or disgrace people, at the very least just for the sake of publicly shaming or disgracing people. And I've even noticed that sometimes this is, this is one of those sins that we sometimes fall into. Uh, have you, do you ever come across those times when maybe in a group of friends you're, you're, tempted to, you're tempted to casually bring up that past sin of that friend that maybe you don't like or are a little mad at or... Maybe in a, a group of people, you're tempted to un unnecessarily critique someone in public. You see, I think there's all kinds of subtle ways in which we sort of uh, break these virtues, right? I think there are subtle ways in which we slander each other sometimes, especially in group settings and in peer pressure settings, right? And it's, let me just remind us in, in the, the midst of life, as we sort of examine our, ourselves, it's not our place to publicly expose people's flaws. It's not. That's, everyone's got a Holy Spirit. It's the Lord's job to do that. It's your job to be a faithful friend. It is your job to love God, to love others, and speak when necessary, and preferably in private. Don't seek opportunities to publicly criticize someone, because it hurts more than you think. Thirdly, David says that the aspiring worshiper must admire the right people. He starts this in verse 4. He goes, In whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. What does David mean when he says to despise the reprobate? What does that mean? Does that mean we're supposed to hate sinners? I thought we were supposed to love sinners. I thought that's why we shared the gospel with people. When David says reprobate, he's using a word that can mean a, a vile uh, rejected or a scorned person. And in other, in other words, I don't think David is referring to any ordinary sinner here. When David says, tells us to despise the reprobate, he's telling us to, to hold a certain level or a certain type of contempt for those whose lives are so, are so saturated with sin that it's clear they have no allegiance with God the Father. I think that's what he's calling for, to have an appropriate level of disgust for the lifestyles of those who clearly do not love the Lord, who clearly don't don't follow him or have any allegiance to him. In contrast, David says, be one who honors those who fear the Lord. In other words, be someone who uh, choose to gravitate toward those who honor the Lord, choose to gravitate toward Christians. Let me just apply this to one pertinent area for a moment. We live in a culture that sort of, it almost worships celebrities sometimes. We, we love movie, we sort of gravitate toward actors actresses, um, music stars, things like that. And after a while, they sort of rub off on us, and it's easy to get caught up in their influence. But let me just ask you this question. Are, are you being careful who you gravitate towards? 
That's how I want to apply this principle. Are you being careful who you gravitate towards? Are you being careful what you choose to let into your life on a consistent basis? Are you being careful about what you choose to let influence you and perhaps even pull your heart away from the Lord? Because there's a very real sense in which you do become what you absorb. You start to love and cherish what you absorb on a regular basis. And I've noticed this in my own life. And I just have to pay vigilant attention, especially during times of stress. How strongly am I guarding what influences me and what I honor and what I hold dear? Lastly, David says that the aspiring worshiper must be good in his public conduct, or really that he must sort of be good in, must uh, exemplify goodness, exemplify mercy and morality in his surrounding world. He starts this point in the end of verse 4, and going into verse 5, he says, he swears to his own hurt and doesn't change. He does not put out his money at interest, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. David David lists three virtues regarding sort of related to public conduct that should never characterize the people of God. First, he says that he swears to his own hurt and doesn't change. In other words, the godly person is he or, or she who is characterized by consistently keeping their promises, even when it works out to their detriment. Now, David's not advising those of us here to to take rash promises or, or to promise things that we can't follow through on. But what he is saying is that when you make a promise, stick through to it. Be a person of your word. Be a person of integrity in what you say and in what you follow through on. Let me just ask this question. Do we always keep our promises, even when it's not convenient? Are we, are we people of our word on a consistent basis? Do we have such a staunch commitment to integrity and honesty that we always follow through on what we say we will. Next, David says he does not put out his money at interest. Now, just put money out at interest simply means that you, you loan money, and then in David's mind here probably has the idea of uh, receiving it back with sort of exorbitant interest, sort of using people, taking advantage of people. In fact, God was so disgusted by that practice that he, he outlawed it in the Old Testament. He never wanted... He never wanted generosity among the Jewish people to sort of to sour into usury or turn into usury. And uh, the reason for this was because throughout the Old Testament, you'll notice there's sort of this theme that threads its way through the Old Testament. God has always had a deep concern for the poor, a deep concern for the poor, because he's a God of compassion. So let me apply the principle this way. Just let me simply ask you. Do we have the Lord's concern for the poor? Sort of tying in with what I said earlier. Are we tender-hearted and compassionate people? Do we have the same sort of concern for the needy in our world? And I think we, I think that's particularly pertinent right now because there's so many people unemployed. Right? And I think even some of the students here are, are currently unemployed. Do you have the same concern for those who uh, may need may need help? Right. Does your heart reflect the tenderheartedness of the Lord is what I'm trying to point to with that. And lastly, David says, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. This is a sort of a similar, similar form of usury that David points out. What would happen on occasion in the ancient world is the, the rich would sort of take advantage of the non-rich by sort of bribing the judge to give them uh, a, 
to give them more of a favorable sentence. Again, it's a, it's a, a foul violation of God's justice that he hates. That's because we serve a God who is inherently just, inherently holy in all of his nature. Let me ask this question. When we notice atrocities in our society, when we notice violations of justice in our world, do we speak out against them? Or do we sit back in silence? Right, as we're caught up in sort of the chaos of our own lives, we just ask this convicting question. Do you and I, do you and I still have a concern for the injustice that surrounds us? We live in a world that's, you know, that's quickly, especially a culture that's quickly losing its, its sense of righteousness and sometimes its sense of justice. Do you and I sort of have the same heartbeat or concern about that in our world that our father does? Or do we, and, and I've done this, I do this a lot sometimes, like do we just sort of become so preoccupied with our own circumstances that we sort of maybe close in and almost act as if there isn't a world out there that needs us? Just something to think about. And, and that's the end of David's corporate picture of the godly man. David is, is not being exhaustive. He's not saying that in order to have fellowship with God, you must do each and every one of these things perfectly. Rather, what David's doing is he, he's, he's painting a picture, sort of a, a composite picture of what the godly person is, is supposed to strive to look like. That's what David is. That's what David is pointing out here. And that's how we should take it in application. And let me just say to you this morning, if, if you're hearing the, the preaching of this message and you feel as though maybe the Lord's sort of convicting you deeply or you've noticed one or several of these areas that, you know, the Lord is exposing in your own heart, let me just remind you of one virtue that David doesn't deal with here, but that due to his own failure, he deals with very, very thoroughly and very masterfully in another psalm. Go ahead and turn to Psalm 51 with me. And I'll close with this. If you are sitting here taking stock of your life and, and you just notice maybe the Lord's just using this as a necessary heart check for you and, and you realize that you haven't been pleasing to him, you haven't been striving as hard as you should be to orient your life toward what he would want it to have, to sort of make sure that your heart reflects what his heart values. Remember this all the time. David says in Psalm 51, after he realized that he failed miserably, he says this, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. So even though this passage is convicting, you and I have to remember that we are children not just subjects, you and I are, are children of a holy king. We belong to him. He's our father. We call him Abba. And he it is that is merciful. And he it is that loves us with an unfailing love. So much so that he's bound and determined to make each and every one of us holy. And, so much, and he loves us so much that he will always accept genuine repentance. In fact, he loves it. He loves it. And, when, and the beautiful thing is that when repentance takes place, fellowship resumes. When we turn from our sin and embrace the Lord, and even just in the, the context of the Christian life, when we choose once again to actively pursue holiness, uh, there's a beautiful sense in which 
fellowship resumes. So, so I would say to you, if you're convicted this morning, just do what David did. Shout out to the Lord. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit, Lord. Thank you. Just say, Lord, thank you for reminding me of the standards you would have me seek. Thank you for reminding me of the heart I am to reflect in my life. And Lord, thank you for the fact that I have your spirit to convict me of my shortcomings and to, to guide me in the way everlasting and to always steer me back toward the path of holiness. And David ends Psalm, go ahead and flip back to Psalm 15. David ends the Psalm this way. And, and I think this is particularly comfort, comforting for those of us worried about the COVID-19 panic. David says, he who does these things will never be shaken. Do you want genuine security? Do, do you want close, intimate fellowship with the Lord? Do you want to sense or just sense the reality more pertinently that you are connecting with him through prayer, through the reading of the word? Do you want to make sure that there's never this sort of barrier between you and him? Through, his, through the power of his spirit, strive to align your life with what's here. Strive to align your life with what is here. And in, you, you can't do it in your own strength, but that's why you have his spirit that flourishes in your soul and that has transformed who you are and that now pricks your conscience regularly. And David says, he who does these things will never be shaken. In other words, he who strives to orient his life this way is the, and, and thus the one who, who really does enjoy that rich fellowship with God and who is sustained by his presence. He offers peace beyond understanding. He offers peace that cannot be explained by the ways of the world. Seek to live holy lives. Through the power of the spirit he's put in you, Seek to be those who not just do the right things, but, but really grow so close to the Lord that you begin to take on the very desires of his heart. That's why he saved you. He saved you to be like his son, to pull you out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light and to make you like himself. Grow close to him so as to relish that truth. And he'll provide you with the most incomprehensible peace, even amidst all of life's turmoils, that you can't explain, you know, in the ways of the world. So I would challenge you today, seek the Lord. Just in the midst of all of life's chaos, remember, seek the Lord with all your heart. Seek him with all your heart. Let's end in a word of prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for its honesty. Thank you, Lord, for, thank you for its truth. And Lord, I just thank you for the fact that we have a sure guide in your word when we're wondering sometimes, what must my life look like? You tell us, Lord. You tell us what you desire of us. You tell us how we should model our lives. Lord, for that I am grateful. Thank you, Lord, for the clarity of the word and its convicting power. And Lord, be with each and every one of the students today. Lord, uh, I thank you for them all. Thank you for my NBC family. And yeah, I just pray that your grace would be with each and every one of us. Remind us all that you love us and also remind us that there's a much better standard that we are to attain to than the world around us. In your name I pray. Amen.